Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy inspires leaders to grow their companies from startup to 40 million beyond by designing world-class strategic plans, but more importantly, keeping them accountable to actually get it done. Go to 40strategy.com to learn more. Like to always have a shout out whenever possible. Thank you to Darren Verasami, founder at 34 Strong, for our referral to our next guest, which is Dov Barron. Mr. Barron has been named twice to the list of the world's top 30 global leadership gurus and Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers. Has presented to companies and organizations around the world, including the United Nations and the Department of State, the World Management Forum in Iran, the U.S. Air Force, and the famed Servant Leadership Institute. He has a focus on human behavior and neuroscience has made him the leading authority on emotional source code and the anatomy of... Please go to his website at dubbaron.com to more, learn more. He's also a best-selling author, One Red Thread, and fiercely loyal... Now, I, I'm so excited for you to be on here. Welcome to Measures to Success Podcast. Thank you so much, Cal. I'm really looking forward to being on. I really loved our previous conversation, so I'm really looking forward to getting our teeth into this one and finding out how I can best serve your audience. Perfect. Well, let's start out with, I always like to ask, what do you do? You know, What is your core business, so to speak, and how are you helping out people in the world? It falls into three categories. Of course, I speak around the world. I serve organizations and I serve individuals, high performance individuals who are athletes, entertainers, and leaders. But the core of it all is what we call emotional source code, finding out what the emotional source code is. So in the context of an organization, we've all read Simon Sinek's book, Start With White. It's a great book. I recommend it. But it says start because there's something underneath that. And that is the why of your why. That's the emotional source code. Most people will manufacture a why and they don't feel the emotional connection to it. And we've dissipated and disvalued the emotional piece, but we are emotional first. We'd like to think we're very rational, very logical, but we're not. So once you understand that, then you understand how to tap into that within yourself, within your organization, and even within your nation. So I do that in order to create cultures, in order to create better leaders who really understand how to bond with people. And as I said, it can be done with nations. But the, the key thing about it is to understand, particularly in a post-pandemic world, that in the war for talent, talent won. It's over, right? You, you, you don't have the power anymore. I know you'd like to think you do. I'd like to think I do too, but it's not true. The truth of the matter is the talent has the power and you've created a culture where you're looking for people to fit in. Now, just think about that context for a moment. Fitting in requires us to distort. It requires us to squeeze into something and we have to therefore disenfranchise, disembody parts of ourselves. And what people are now saying is, no, nah, I'm not going to come work for you. I, I am not interested in fitting in. I need a place where I belong. Building a culture where people belong creates fierce loyalty, binds them to you through a community. So that's the work I do individually, corporately, and nationally. And and if you get a chance to take a look at his website, once it's D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com, 
the amount, the different people that you have made an impact with is extraordinary, both from people famous, extraordinarily famous people you've worked with. I'm sure there's many you do not have your website because they're like, they don't well, want to be picked well, up. Allow me to. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, so, you cannot put that up there. Okay. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, you, you once again, get this real amazing opportunity. You're, you're up in Vancouver, British Columbia, up in Canada. And I'm fascinated with is, well, let's talk about that fierce loyalty because a little bit more, because that culture piece, right, is for many is the quote unquote, the secret sauce that people mm -hmm. think, right? And, and I love that how you said, okay, we were doing something to create it and make it so people want to be it. And they, so they do change their habits to fit within the organization. But what you're saying today is that's not going to work. Not going to work anymore, for sure. So how do you get this organization that has believed strongly mm -hmm. that we have the biggest secret sauce and everybody wants to work for us to all of a sudden to be open to somebody behaving in a way that is not consistent with how they anticipated? That's a great question. And I, and I want to answer it by context first. So the context first is we're in a post-pandemic world. So what happened before the pandemic well, we're too big. We could never go hybrid. We could never go, you know, remote. Well, three weeks later, the biggest of the biggest had to turn their ship around and go remote. There was no option. And then, you know, as things started to come back, they went, oh, yeah, well, we're going to go hybrid. We can do that, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. And Apple just proved that. Apple's just come out with their latest research that hybrid is not working. It's dying. So Apple, the company everybody wants to work for, is recognizing it won't work. That's an important piece of context for all of us. So why is it not working? Because of one thing, and that's it. I don't want to fit in. I want to belong. What does that mean? I want to do what I want to do. I, I'm happy to work for you. I'm happy to bring all of my value, but on my terms. So what does that mean? It means, so I was working with a company recently, and they have several offices that are 50,000 square feet. Okay, around the world. And, and I said, okay, so here's my best advice to you. You need to go down to 20,000 square feet in each of these locations, fill them all with workstations, and build in 30% of that as closed door offices, mm. which people are not didn't want anymore. But they like, you got to put that in there, because there are people who want that now. And they go, okay, so we're going to save a lot of money on the other 30,000 square feet. And I'm like, no, you're not. And they go, why? And I go, because that's not your money. And they go, what it is? No, it's not. And they go, well, what is it then? It now belongs to your community. And they go, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. The community you're physically located in, you have to engage with that community and show that you're adding value to the community, number one, because people will not work for you who do not see you making a difference in the local community. And number two, it's the community of your people because what you've got to do is you've now got to put on community meetings, which are events and socials and all those kinds of things for the people who work for you who are totally remote and you are willing to bring them in and have these social events. So they will literally, the day they're in the office, it will be posted on their site, on their, on their notes. I'm not available to work today. I'm going into work because they're going in there to be social and connect. So the idea of the the making the contacts with each other, networking with each other, building friends at work is still possible, but it's not a work sense of thing. 
So you're building community. And in Fiercely Loyal, I wrote about this in 2015. One of my four C's was you've got to create community. And now what I said, don't build a business without building a community. Now I've turned that around and said, don't build a business at all. Build a community and put a business in it. Mm. You've got to build the community first. Then people are like, okay, I want to bring something to this, which means you've got to now examine the rules that you've had inside of your culture. What are the rules? Because if your rules are that you've got to look a certain way, you're dead in the water. You're dead in the water, particularly if you've got a face-to-face situation. If you've got people who are working remotely and they've never, never seen, it doesn't matter. But you have to really think about that. So, for instance, there's a new law being passed in New York that is against discrimination, discrimination against people who have tattoos. Because a lot of companies won't apply, won't employ people who have tattoos. And the law in New York is now going to change to say you can't discriminate against that. Wow. Personal choice. Hmm. So it's fascinating how Hmm. all these changes are taking places. And of course, we're all going, yeah, but I got to hold on to my old stuff. Well, I got news for you. It's over. As I keep telling people, I just did a big presentation on it. Normal is dead. Remember in the pandemic, everybody was like, can't wait to get back to normal. What is this normal you speak of? (laughs) It's like, I don't know. (laughs) What I want to go back, first of all, wow, right? But (laughs) what I really like, what was really interesting, I was, I'll go and share where they were because I shared the presentation. I was at a conference yesterday speaking, one of the other co-speakers was Ricky Wright. And she had said, she's actually worked for Comcast, major, major, major company, right? And they were, they had this strategy for all do the same thing. Well, if you're familiar with Eugene, Oregon at all, it's a very different culture city, right? Okay. And they tried to actually do a sponsorship and the city of Eugene wouldn't let them. Three years later, they've created community there. And not only they've actually done these really amazing stories of working, how they've been working with on the, on the business side. And now they've been able to even have a sponsorship down there, but it, it, it just validating what you just said. And the other part was those two is you cannot do the same thing. You have to be aware of each respective community and the values that it has and fit within that. Right. It's, it is the community is what it is. Right. Yeah. And to just think, Oh, we're going to provide the X, Y, Z brand and they're going to love it. They're not. Well, it's the exact opposite of what we thought. We used to think we'll come in and they'll adapt to us because we're so great. And it's like, no, they won't. It's the other way around. You got to work out how you are going to fit in that community. And so, for instance, I give a a very clear example of it. Chick-fil-A. I do not agree with Chick-fil-A's personal philosophy. They're anti-gay, right? Mm -hmm. They're very Christian. Okay, but I will support them all day long, every day of the week because they're very clear about who they are and what they are. But if they try and open up in an LGBT community and then expect that LGBT community to adapt to them, they're dead in the water. They understand that. They get that. So this is the key is like, you've got to find out here's what our real purpose is. Here's what our real maxims non-negotiable values are and then we got to look at the communities and say is this going to fit here are are they going to embrace us are they going to go you know what 
we don't like you because then you're going to be on a job of trying to convert them and they're going to see through that. They're going to see you're trying to manipulate us and tell us that you're not this and you're not that. And people are calling this stuff out over the last five, six years more than ever. So we've got to be far more attentive to looking at, well, I'm just going to go in because I'm, I'm the hot guy and all the chicks are going to rave around me or I'm the hot girl and all the guys are going to, that's not how it works anymore. Your business is not the hot guy or the hot chick. That's not how it works. Now you have to dis- you have to interview them to see if they'll accept you. So I'm I'm a little bit curious because that you talked about earlier about this. I felt it right. There was this. Everybody had to change during the the, the pandemic period. Yep. Right. And you could clearly sense this. I want to go back to what I was. Mm-hmm. Right. There, there's this, this is your, and just like people saying, we're going to go back to offices again, right? You know, because it's not working. We haven't figured out. Just like we learned that remote learning down at K-12 didn't work out very well. Mm-hmm. You know, the data is like very clear. It did not work out very well. So people are pushing back. They're going back to this part. But what you're saying, though, is they can't fully go back no. to where they were. What other key strategies to help people understand this? Like, what are the things you asking questions to these large organizations to go, hey, you, there's trends. There's a, let me stop there. Go ahead and answer that question. Well, the, the first, the first key is in this. So pre-pandemic, I was, we were brought in to work with a, uh, a development company who were uh, property development, right? So international builders, a company, and, uh, and we were at the head office and, you know, they were, they wanted to look at the culture and, and build a, a purpose that was based on the emotional source code. And they figured they'd got the culture nailed. And I was like, okay, that's great. Let, let's find out. So it took me about 10 minutes to work out that, that was not true. And I said, give me an example of what you've done for the culture. And this is the founder and the CEO. And they, okay, so one of the things they do is they walk me out into this big area and it's got bean bags and coffee machines and a foosball, foosball table and there's nobody in there. And, and they said, well, this is what we mean about millennials being entitled. I go, no, they're not. And they go, yeah, they are. Look, we built this for them and they don't even use it. I said, number one, let, let's start here. How often do you use it? Well, I don't. Then why would they? Well, what do you mean? Leadership is by example. If you're not using it, you're telling them it's not okay to use it. You're sending a message that, yeah, use it, but we're watching you. <laughs> so they will feel like, oh, this is not, a, I can't relax in there. Forget it. So that's number one. Number two, did you ask them? Maybe they don't like coffee. Maybe they don't like football. Did you even ask them what they wanted? And this is where we're at today. Mm-hmm. It's what do you want? So the hybrid model, as Apple said, is not working because here's what does work. Choice. This is the strategy. Who go, well, what's this magical strategy? Choice. They have the power. When would you like to work, Charlie? Well, I'd like to work from home all the time. Fantastic. When would you like to work, Susan? I'd like to get in the office because I want to get the hell away from my kids. Fantastic. When would you like to work, Bob? I'd like to work three days a week in and three days a week out. Fantastic. When would you like to work? I'd like to work on one day a week in when I choose. 
fantastic. Whatever you want, that's okay. We just need to know in advance. And if there is in-person things that need to be done that literally are physically person to person, we're going to let you know that and we're going to let you know in advance. Is that okay? Yep, great. Tons and tons of choice for them, not you. You've got to work, think about, it's not about hours, it's about productivity. It's about getting the results. That's it. You don't care. I don't care if somebody's working for me and they're doing it at 2 in the morning. Why would I care? I just care. I need the deadline by 9 a.m. on Friday. Was it done at 9 a.m. on Friday? Yes. Do I say, well, did you do it between 9 and 5 on Thursday? I don't care. This is the this is the key strategy. Understanding you're empowering your people to have choice so they feel like, oh, I'm I'm valuable here and my opinion matters for me. They're not trying to change me. They're embracing me. Now I want to be more for them. Mm. That's the dichotomy, right? That's it. Yep. Yep. It, it's it, when we go, when we talk about this labor, there's this interesting thing, right? Where, where, whether we call it a recession or not, things are slowing down. Interest sure. rates are going up here, especially down in the US. The, the housing market's starting to decline. If you're in the mortgage industry, you're in a depression already. You know, if you're doing things, things really significant changes. And there's this interesting thing I feel because I talk with a lot of business owners, CEOs, of course. And, and they kind of almost hope, they kind of hope that the power will go away from the employee. Of course. But the demographics don't show that. Even if we go down, there's going to be such a tightness of labor because fact is the U.S. is really not, the, the developed nations are barely growing in population, and especially with immigration, making it very difficult to immigrate, right? The reality is there's, there's more job opportunities than there are people to work for it, even in a declining market. So how do we get that across, right? That this isn't going to change, even if, you're firing some people. They're going to find jobs right away, right? Yeah. So thank you, Cal. This is really great that you're bringing this up because this is the political end of what I do. And so we talk about the political end of business. The political end of leadership is this. You want stricter rules on immigration. Okay, fine. Do you realize you have a declining national population? No. Yeah, and it happens in all first world countries. As incomes go up, the birth rate goes down. It's natural. Right. Japan likely won't exist in 50 years for Japanese people because in two and a half generations, Japanese people will be gone. Right. In 1989, Sweden was paying $10,000 to Swedish people to return to Sweden and have children with other Swedes. Wow. Because they could see the declining population happening. Yeah. Right. But they didn't stop their immigration either because they understood that that won't be enough. So the other thing is that you're going to have a when you get that declining population, you also have a brain drain. So if you look at the leading CEOs of the top 20 companies or the leading C-suite individuals, the leading ones, the top 20 are all from India. Mm. Uh, yeah, OK, you should slap immigration down. That will not help you. You're going to go out of business. You're going to decline. It's not so you've got to open up immigration because it, it's on two ends. On the very upper end, because all the Nobel Prizes that were won by the US in the last 15 years were won by immigrants. You know, so they're Americans, but they're immigrants. Yeah. And at the bottom end, yeah, I'm gonna pay you three bucks to go pick strawberries. You're gonna go do it? I don't think so. 
right? So it's the bottom end and the top end. So you've got these things. And of course, as you said, many employers are like, well, if there is this decline in, in the economy, then we're going to be able to have some of that power back. No, you're not. That's what everybody thought about coming out of the pandemic. And it, we got the great resignation. What was the great resignation and what is quiet quitting? May I just explain that? Yes, please do. Because I think that many companies and leaders don't understand. When the pandemic hit, so let's just backtrack that a bit for context. In 2008, there was a global recession. We all remember that. And people freaked out and they went, oh my God, I thought this company liked me or cared about me and they chucked me out on my, on my, on my heels. So I am going to start my own thing. And many people started their own thing. Many people couldn't start their own thing, but they started a side thing. And some people went in and continued on and said, okay, now's my chance to climb the corporate ladder. But each one of those three groups got into becoming part of the hustle culture. Gary Vaynerchuk was the high priest of hustle, right? Yep, it, was, it, was, it was drilled into us, hustle, hustle, hustle. People bragged about doing 60 hours a week, right? It was a, we, hustle is just another word for workaholic, but it was applauded. The pandemic came and people got freaked out because suddenly they couldn't hustle. Mm. But what happened is they got what I call the great pause. See, they were saying, I can't wait for things to get back to normal, which meant back to working like a lunatic. But during the great pause that was the, was COVID, they went, why am I doing this? Mm. I, I want to buy a bigger house, but I'm never in my house. I've got a house full of strangers who happen to be my family that I don't know. I'm looking to buy a better car. Why? So I can make that two hours of commute each day. That's crazy. I don't want to do that. So they began to question the meaning of their lives. This is an identity crisis and it is fantastic, but feels terrible and looks terrible to the company who's trying to employ you, but it's actually brilliant. It's magnificent. And, and nations are doing it because in the United States, we're asking, is this who we are? We're looking at the political scene and going, is this really who we are? Is this what America has really become? This is a good thing because all change needs that catalyst. Nothing of significant value, nothing of significant change, nothing of significant innovation takes place in the normal. It takes place under pressure, right? So yes. now you've got this context of the great, resignation has come out of the great pause of like, well, why are we doing this? Now, of course, there are people who are saying, I can't walk away, so I'm, I'm stopping hustling. I'm going back to work, but I'm not hustling anymore. I'm going to do the quiet quitting thing, which really just means I'm disen disengaged. I'm just going to be there. I'm just going to do my thing. And because you can't find other people, I get away with it. And it's, of course, making companies insane. Instead of saying, well, what really engages them? Well, you know, we brought in this engagement person and they helped us and they gave these, these strategies, but it doesn't seem to be working. No, because there's billions of dollars being spent on how to get engagement and it hasn't worked. Enga disengagement's gone up, not down. So what works? Choice and power to the employee so that they are choosing to be with you because I don't want quiet quitters in my organization. I'm not interested in having them. 
right? I want people who want to be here because they belong here. They're excited to work with us. They love what we're doing. They love the difference we're making. And they love that we can articulate at every possible level the emotional significance of it. That's what creates the real engagement. And then when you look at that, you see that those companies are doing very well. So as an example, Unilever is not short of employees. Mm. Why? Because post-pandemic, they decided to really, really examine their purpose. They had one, but they decided to examine it. Now, if you're not sure what Unilever is, it's an umbrella company for a bunch of companies like Dove and et cetera. They decided we really need to re-examine the purpose. They did that with their core team of Unilever, and then they did it of all the umbrella companies, all the companies that were under that umbrella. They did the same thing. It was so significant and so powerful, they decided that they could see the disengagement, they could see the quiet quitting, they could see the, the things that were going on, and they went, maybe we need to do this with our 84,000 employees. Mm. 84,000 employees who had been previously some majority disengaged, quote, quiet quitting, they put each of them through a two-day training, obviously not all at the same two days, and, you know, across the world. People say, well, what's the ROI on that? Well, here's one example. One example in an independent, anonymous survey, they were asked three months later, would you go the extra mile for the company? Now, you have to think that when you're disengaged, the answer is, I'm not even going the mile, dude, let alone the extra mile. <laughs> 76% said wow. you would go the extra mile. That's extraordinary. And are you talking about the problems with quiet quitting? There's yeah. no problem. Yeah. There's no problem. You've not engaged the people. And engagement is not foosball or coffee machines or paid vacations or the things you think it is because you don't get to determine it. They do. And how do you do that? You must emotionally engage them. That's the key. And everybody's forgetting about emotion, but it is the fundamental piece. It's what drives each of us. So I always like to ask the question, how to measure success. How do companies need to measure success now? That's a great question. So I think you have to measure success by emotional engagement and by trust. Mm. Right. How, how do you measure trust? So what is a way that you can actually measure that trust actually exists? So first of all, you have to construct trust and, and you have to do that by deconstructing it first. So what is it? So trust, the example I'd like to give is this. I want you to imagine for a moment, you have a friend who's standing to your right, someone you've known for about five years who is a loyal, trusted friend. And on your left, you have another person you've known for about the same amount of time, but this person is an acquaintance. What's the distinction? What makes one of them a loyal, trusted friend and the other one just an acquaintance? And people will say, well, I trust them. Yeah. Great. Okay. You can't say it was time. So you say, I trust them. Great. How did you trust them? Well, I don't know. Well, I do. It's reciprocal vulnerability. Yeah. Reciprocal vulnerability shows trust. We as companies don't want to show that. We don't want to say, we don't want to go, listen, we're, we're struggling now. The, the great recession, uh, great resignation has come, quiet quitting is happening, there's a shortage of people, we're struggling here, what do we need to do? Let, we're asking you, you work here, and we're going to listen to it, we're going to take it on the nose. Well, you know, you're kind of shit, you don't pay enough, 
or you don't give us holidays or there's 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 no pregnancy leave or there's no paternity leave or whatever it is or i don't think you really care about us or you have a policy against lgbtq or you have a policy that is subtly racist or you have a policy that is against people with tattoos or whatever it is <laughs> and then you have to instead of getting all defensive you have to shut up and listen because when you shut up and listen and respond with change, not respond, but respond with, here's how we're going to change that, and then putting that in action, not just there, but actually do it, you then get trust because there you have created reciprocal vulnerability. You said, we're struggling. What do we need? And they're vulnerable enough to say, here's what you need. And that reciprocal vulnerability creates trust. Now, how do you measure that trust by the application of the new changes? As, I, as, as we mentioned, or I think we may have mentioned, this, may, this is probably going to be a part two series because there's so much that you can help provide. Let's go ahead and switch over to the personal side for a minute because one of the things that I love, this is a personal business for sure. Sure. Because it, it, it's, it's all intertwined and interconnected. I, in, our, in our prep talk, mentioned David Goggins, who, if you haven't heard of David Goggins, those are listening, just go check him out. He's a former Navy SEAL and is just extraordinarily hard work and effort. And his background is tough. One of the toughest, I mean, just tough, tough, tough background. And what he had to overcome at so many different stages along the way. And so I have often, one of the reasons I love to actually have the show is I like to share, hey, look, if you've had troubles look at some of these other people have overcome them because you can do it too, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then, but with the problem, what you shared with me was it diminishes my pain. Yep. Talk about that a little bit deeper because you shared with me insights. I was like, I, I had this big, huh? Right. It shocked me right when you said it, because I, frankly, I kind of steered this different direction. Sure. I think we all do because it's kind of the easier thing to, Look, we're, it's not so bad for us. Share the the psychology, if you may, or the science behind why that screwed up that that philosophy. Well, let's start here. That the first world is based on competition, right? And the problem with competition is somebody's winning, somebody's losing, somebody's better than, somebody's worse than. I don't live in that world. I live in the first world, of course. I, I'm a capitalist, just like everybody else, but I'm not in competition with anybody. I don't have any competition. And, pe and, that, and people go, well, that's kind of arrogant. No, there's nothing arrogant about it. It's because Carl, what Carl does, Carl does beautifully and brilliantly. I'm not, why would I compete with that? What I do is what I do. It's unique, and, it, and that's the value of it. So we have to step away from this competition because we run that as the way we are, we look at somebody else's husband and we go, I should be a better husband. Somebody else's wife, I should be a better wife. Instead of saying, well, who am I? Is this how I'm behaving in this marriage? Is this me? Is this, is this really the best I can do? Not compared to Charlie, but is this the best I can do? I mean, am I just a douchebag? Or am I actually a decent human being who could really show up a lot better in this marriage? Oh, well, I could show up a lot better in this marriage or parenting or whatever it is, or in leadership. So we got to step away from competition. The problem with it is, is it's permeated everything. Mm. And it includes permeating pain. So we look at people like Dave Goggins, who is a phenomenon, 
I mean, that's what he is, right? If you don't know his book, it's You Can't Hurt Me. You know, he's, as you said, he was a Navy SEAL. He went through Hell Week several times with broken bones. And I mean, the guy's a machine. He's a, he's a freaking machine. But if you're looking at him, you're going to have one of two responses, which is it wasn't as bad for me as it was for Dave. So this doesn't count. You can dismiss it. That's right. Or, yeah, mine was shitty, but I'm not Dave. I'm not Dave Goggins, so I can't do it. No, no, no. That's completely wrong. So here's the deal: your pain is equal to anyone else's because it's subjectively yours. So I'll give you an example. I work with a lot of multi generational wealthy families. Now I was born in abject poverty, just to be clear with crime and violence and abuse and addiction and all those things surrounding me at every possible turn. It was not a pretty place. And I'm working with these people who were born into billions of dollars. And people go, well, it's all right for them, isn't it? I'm like, absolutely not. And they go, what do you mean? I mean, I thought that you would really see that they're privileged. And I'm like, they're not privileged. You think it's any fun being Prince William? It sucks. I wouldn't want to be Prince William. Where's his freedom? Where's his freedom? He wants to go out and get pissed with the lads on a Saturday night? That's not happening. Not unless it's in secret. There's no freedom. So we have to understand that every situation has its own unique version of pain. But we're always looking at the world through our lenses and judging the world that way. Your pain is as real and as crippling as Dave Goggins was or as anybody else's is. You go, well, you know, well, I didn't have cancer and my friend had cancer. Yeah, but where have you had cancer? Well, I haven't. What has been eaten away at you for the last 20 years? Well, my dad beat the snot out of me. That's a cancer, man. That stuff's eaten away at your very soul. Well, you know, we had a lot of money and I didn't grow up really poor. Yeah, that's true. But the poor kid you're talking about, who you think is really rough, you know, his mom told him he loved him every day. Your mom's never even hugged you. Mm. Your pain is equal to that pain. It's not, it's different, it's subjective, but it's not by measure. You've got to own that. And why do you have to own that? Because if you don't, you're always comparing to other people. So again, you've devalued yourself. And you will never heal what you need to heal. And if you never heal what you need to heal, you will never serve at the level you're here to serve. Because your pain is vitally important because your pain is the catalyst for you serving in the world. And life is happening not to you, but for you. Let me just explain that one moment here. In June 1990, I fell 120 feet while free climbing. That's about 12 stories. I was an adrenaline junkie and I fell off a mountain. I got smashed to pieces. And everybody says, that must have changed your life. 12 reconstructive surgeries later, I'm walking around and people are like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm great. I'm coming back. That was bullshit. That was my ego holding on. I wasn't great. I was depressed. I was in enormous pain. I was angry all the time. There is no back. That's not how it works. But for a year there, I felt like I was that event. Mm. I felt like I was the event. 
But when we are, instead of defined, we are refined by these events, it's like being that rock that is pushed against the wheel and that breaks away everything that is not the diamond underneath. Those events are there to reveal the diamond. And if you don't look at it, you'll never find that diamond. If you don't acknowledge your pain, that pain that you went through, uniquely yours, is, the, is all the crap that has sur surrounded the diamond of who you are. And meanwhile, you've got a little facet that shows and you apologize. And you're like, oh, look at me, I'm great. But all the other crap is blocking you from being as magnificent as you can be. You won't get to that by saying, I had a great childhood. Listen, I want to give you what, what John Bradshaw said. This is not my opinion. John Bradshaw was a very famous psychologist. And what he said was, 97% of families are dysfunctional, and the other 3% are liars. <laughs> <laughs> that great. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean your dad abused you, your mother beat you. It doesn't mean that. It means when you were a child, you had needs you could not meet, that could not be met. So if you're thinking, well, you know, but my parents did the best. I have a simple answer for that. Did they? And they go, oh, yeah, my parents. Listen, I'm not saying anything bad against your parents. But here's what I know. They did the best with what they could, with what they were willing to know, which is different than with what they knew. If my kid's going astray, I have to be going, okay, what am I doing wrong? I have to go, what help do I need? I have to be willing to stretch out. But if our egos are too big, we don't do that. And if we're a command and control parent, which most of us had if you're, certainly if you're 45 plus, those parents didn't do that. So you got damaged. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying they did it to be horrible human beings. They didn't wake up in a room and go, well, let's work out how we can screw Carl up. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> they loved you and they thought they were doing their best, and that's fine. But if you don't acknowledge that those needs weren't met, you don't get to grow. And so now let's take that and say, well, how does that play out as a leadership? Now you've got needs that didn't get met, and you're a leader of an organization. Do you think you're paying attention to the needs you're not meeting? Of course you're not. That programming is in place from when you're a kid. So this is why we must look at our pain. If you take a flashlight and you walk out into the midsummer's day, who's going to notice the light? No one. Take that same flashlight into the darkest cave and it will illuminate everything. Sometimes we need the darkness in order to find the light. That's, where you got, that's why you've got to step into the darkness. As Joseph Campbell said, the treasure you seek can only be found in the cave you fear to enter. I knew it. We we are at that horrible point where I don't want this to end. And we unfortunately <laughs> have time constraints. This has been amazing. I am so hopeful that you we get another opportunity because your story is amazing. Just just one habit, one habit that you do on a regular basis to keep yourself at your it's is it a habit hmm. that's a good question i don't know if it's a habit it's habitual but i don't know if it's a habit it's right over my shoulder there and it says stay curious and that you know as you know Carl, we talked about i traveled the world to study different religious philosophies and people will ask me what's your religion and i say my religion is curiosity yeah. the 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 habit that will make you a better leader the habit that will make you a better father, a better mother, a better son, a better anything is curiosity. And, and that curiosity has to start with yourself. 
So if I was giving you that habit to, to really apply, I'd say get up every morning, set 10 minutes, right, and write down a belief, whatever it is. So I'm a Christian, I'm a Jew, I'm a Muslim, I could be a religion thing. I'm an American, you know, I believe it, I'm a Republican. Like some belief you've got, right, whatever it is, write it down and then get curious about it. Why am I? And whatever you answer, ask, well, why? And whatever that answer is, ask, well, why? And get curious for three, four, five levels for 10 minutes. And if you're not satisfied with where you got at the end, go back to it the next day. And if you are quite satisfied with it, you can go to something else. And you start to examine the depth of your being, and you realize that a lot of what you believe isn't actually yours. It was just given to you or you adopted it. And so then you can look at, well, how do I really need to grow? So what's our belief about our company? Well, we're struggling right now because we can't find employees. Is that true? Yes, it's absolutely true. Okay, let's, do, let's get curious about that. What if it's not true? What has to be true for that to be true? That's a question for you. What has to be true for that to be true? What do I, in other words, what do I need to believe in order to keep that as a truth? Mm -hmm. mm, now I got to dig. So mm -hmm. the one habit I would give you is stay curious, my friends. Stay curious because you are far greater than the beliefs you hold as truth. It doesn't mean they're not true, but there's more to you. We, oh, I hate time. Sometimes you have to still, because <laughs> we have to stop. This has been absolutely amazing. I sincerely hope we we get at least, well, at least one opportunity. I'm not even going to ask you my the book to recommend because I know you're going to have a story around that. And I do recommend though, please go to, D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. Truly one of the, he has the number one podcast for based on from Inc. 500. He is, he's extraordinary. As you've been listening to him, I just love what you, you know, you do. I love how you've been changing my mindset behind different things. And I hope you as well as listeners have been able to get that. So thank you so much for being guests on Measure Success Podcast. My absolute pleasure and honor. Thank you, Cal, for inviting me on. And I genuinely hope that it served everybody. And listen, I want to just say one thing before we finish. I have a podcast, as Cal mentioned, and what you probably don't know is the amount of work it takes. Carl puts in a lot of time and energy to create this podcast for you to make sure that he has amazing guests. And I know he's had amazing guests, some of whom are my friends. They give their time and energy. He gives his time and energy. There's a commitment here, but it's a one-sided thing. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to go to wherever you're listening to this, whatever platform it is you're listening to it, and I want you to rate, review, so write something, subscribe to the show, and share it with other people. If you find it valuable, don't hoard it. This is, let's not hoard. This is an abundant world. Let's share it because this is making a difference in people's lives. But people like Carl and me, we don't know unless you tell us. We need you to do that feedback, and we need you to share it out with others. This is vitally important. I highly recommend this podcast, and I highly recommend that you recommend it to others. Rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you. Very kind of you. Very kind. We're going we're gonna to wrap up. Thank you so much once again. And to everyone else who's listening, wishing you the very best and measuring your success. And I hope today you're going to definitely think differently about it. With that, have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.